0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to begin reading with verse 14 and read through verse 36, a longer section uh, this morning. John... 7 beginning with verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into, temp, into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this, man, is not, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Heavenly Father, we look to you, O oh Father, to teach us and instruct us from your word. And Father, we recognize that some things are clear in your word, some things are more difficult to understand And we pray, Father, that you will meet each of us where we are this morning, that we come to you this morning with all kinds of different um, levels of familiarity with your word, and Father, we pray that you will speak to each of us, Father, that you will communicate to each of us through your word, that, Father, you will teach us, you will show us the glories and the riches of your gospel, and the glories and riches of Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we've been working through John chapter 7 uh, for some time, and I think now is as good a time as any to try to do a little bit of housekeeping with John chapter 7. And some of you recall when we were all the way back in chapter 1, uh, I had mentioned that John is fond of introducing themes, and themes will surface, and then they go underground, if you will, for a while. And then another theme will surface, and another theme, and so forth. And it makes uh, it makes for a little bit of a tricky business to preach through John. Sometimes you, you 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 know you have to think through how far do I develop a particular theme because John is actually a, an incredible writer, and um, uh, he'll he'll bring a theme to the surface in. Uh, he'll develop it to a certain point and leave you a little bit on the edge of your chair as it submerges back down again, and only to develop another theme. And uh, um, so picking these sections sometimes is uh, a little bit tricky, and I want to show you some of that as we go through this morning. But if we back up from chapter 7, we can see an outline here that I think is really, really Helpful, if you, if you think through verses 1 through 13, and verse 2 tells us that the Feast of Booths was at hand. I've made a lot of noise about that. That's one of the major feasts that that bring, uh, is supposed to bring all Jewish males to Jerusalem. And we know from the ancient historians that this is one of the popular feasts. You'll recall I had brought in some of the comments from uh, Alfred Edersheim, and we've spoke you know, in previous weeks to that. Uh, and when we're in verses 1 and 2 and following, Jesus and even then his siblings haven't even left to the feast yet. So we could make a division, if you will, in verses 1 through 13, and we could call it before the feast and at the beginning of the feast. Or if we want, we could just say the beginning of the feast, verses 1 through 13. Now, if you look at verse 14... You'll notice that it starts with about the middle of the feast. And this, I think, gives us a really helpful outline. Why are outlines so helpful? Because our minds are always trying to find places to put stuff. And we remember better when we don't leave stuff all cluttered uh, in our heads. Uh, We remember better when we have nice little neat categories to put them in. But the way John's writing here, it's not always easy to do that. Uh, But I think if we think of verses 1 through 13 as the beginning of the feast, verses 14 through 36 as the middle of the feast, and if you look at verse 37, on the last day of the feast, and that would be verses 37 through 52. Now, you'll notice that in many of your Bibles, chapter 8 begins with verse 53. Now, isn't that strange? And if you've never I mean, every chapter should begin with the 53rd verse of the previous chapter, right? Uh, um, We're going to get to that. It's probably going to be a month from now, uh, but we're going to get to that. Uh, Many of you will have little brackets around that section, Uh, 753 through 811. You'll have some footnotes, uh, something to the effect that many of the earliest manuscripts do not uh, contain these verses, and we can talk about that, Lord willing, about a month from now. Uh, We'll be gone for the next two weeks. We'll return on Palm Sunday. I always like to preach a message on Palm Sunday. And then Easter, I always like to uh, preach a message that really focuses on the resurrection. Every message should have some focus on the resurrection, but especially on Easter. Um, So it'll be a month before probably we get to that. Actually, a little better than a month. But at any rate, if we zoom out, if you will, from John 7, we can see these basic divisions. Uh, time frame divisions, if you will, the beginning of the feast, the middle of the feast, the end of the feast. This morning, we're going to focus on the middle of the feast, verses 14 through 36. So if you've got that in your hands, is that clear? Okay. Because I'm about to add something to that. Um, if we center in and we zero in on the middle of the feast, verses 14 through 36, we can find three three divisions there. In fact, what we're going to find there are three reoccurring patterns. And I think this really really helps us uh, understand this chapter. Um, There are three patterns where we have uh, questions and a response by Jesus, but I think more accurately, we might put it this way. We have statements of perplexity and then Jesus responding to those statements Of perplexity, Uh, some of these statements are in forms of questions, uh, but uh, especially in verse, uh, say verse twenty-seven, the perplexity is in a is in a statement. So uh, we have a statement of perplexity and response. Now, as we begin working through these, I think it'll become quite clear. If you look at verse fourteen, there about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple. He begins teaching. Now, we've looked at this verse before, and when we were looking at it before, it was centering on authority, you know, largely centering on authority, and it's not that we're not going to do that this morning, but what I really want to do this morning is show this pattern. Uh, We're going to see this pattern, and we learn a lot about the way Jesus teaches by looking at this pattern. Let me give you an example. Verse 14, Jesus gets up, he begins teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning? Uh, Literally, in the Greek language, it's, how does he know his letters like this? How does he know his letters? What letters? The scriptures. How is it that he knows the scriptures like this when he has never been to any of the famous rabbinical schools is basically what they're saying. That's, in essence, what they're saying. And Matthew forms a commentary here for us. A, a wonderful, you don't need to turn there. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been wearing you out, um, having you flip everywhere. Um, so verses, and, and probably the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preaches, the Sermon on the Mount, as people who heard that, they comment in 728 and 29 of Matthew's gospel We read, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not their scribes. This provides us with some commentary into the experience of what it was like to sit and listen to Jesus preach. It rocked them back into their seats, if you will. Now, they probably stood while he taught, but you understand the expression and the context Folks who listened to messages at that time would typically hear their rabbis preach this way. A rabbi would be known, he'd be identified as a particular school. For example, one rabbi may be from the Hillel school. Some of you may be familiar with the ancient rabbi Hillel, or maybe some may be of the Shammai school. Uh, So they're identified with a particular school, if you will, and they they would open up the Torah, that is the law. They would open that up, and they would begin to give their discourse on the Torah, and as they... Uh, wanted to um, press credibility or authority, they would begin to quote famous rabbis. To put it in uh, context today, we might open up and identify ourselves perhaps with a particular theological persuasion, whether it be Calvin or whether it be Wesley or whoever it might be, and then we would begin quoting Calvin or we'd begin quoting Wesley, we'd begin quoting Jonathan Edwards or uh, whatever our preference would be not Jesus. Jesus is not doing that. He's not doing that. And here comes Jesus, and he is preaching like they have never heard in their lives. And they're wondering, how does he know the scriptures like this when he has never been to school? Do you see their perplexity There's the perplexity I'm talking about. Now, to this perplexity, Jesus gives a response. And this is the pattern I want us to see. And there's something that Jesus is doing here that is brilliant, that is so easy to miss. In verse 16, Jesus answered them saying, My teaching is not mine. Now we might say f- for a moment, Okay, Jesus, your teaching is not yours. Now, my teaching is not mine. My teaching is his who sent me. Now, why would Jesus say his teaching is not his? Is it because he has a different kind of teaching? Is it because he has no teaching to offer, only what the Father has? What's Jesus doing? It becomes perfectly clear when we begin to understand how Jesus ministers. Jesus will very often utilize the categories of the people that question him in his response. Let me give you a famous example of what I'm talking about. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond to that? Have you ever scratched your head over Jesus' response? He says, why do you call me good? Well, uh, because you're Jesus. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except for God. Wait a second, Jesus. Are you saying you're not good? Because the author to the letter of Hebrews said you're perfect. You're without sin. What is Jesus doing? He is answering this rich young ruler in the categories upon which he has been questioned. The rich young ruler has a presupposition here that Jesus wants to debunk. And he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus wants to debunk that, and he asks him, why do you call me good? Well, the answer is very clear. It's because this teacher thinks there's good guys running around who are good enough to get to heaven. And he happens to think he is one of those good guys, and he's aligning himself with someone else who he happens to think is one of those guys. And Jesus is saying, listen, why do you call me good? You can almost hear Jesus. I mean, you're about to echo Paul in chapter 3 of Romans. There is no one good, not one. No, have all turned aside. Together they become worthless, et cetera, et cetera. You know all those things that are uh, dragged out of the Psalms that are far from flattering as they describe us? That whole list of stuff. Jesus wants to know why this guy would call him good. What is Jesus doing? He's answering the guy in the, qu- in the categories, utilizing the categories in which he is questioning him. Do you follow me? Jesus is doing the same thing here. They're marveling. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Embedded in that, in that perplexed question are really two things. Where does his authority come from? What school is he aligning himself with? And what famous, what, ra- what rabbi has he sat under? And the rabbi that he sat under would be part and parcel of the authority. His authority would be related in this line of thinking that way. And what's Jesus say? Okay, I'm going to give you... uh, He's answering them in the categories upon which they're questioning him. And he's saying, oh, okay, I I get it. Well, here's the school. My school is from heaven. I went to school in heaven. And the famous rabbi that I sat under is the Father. And the teaching that I ascribe to is that of the Father. So in other words, where does his teaching come from? His teaching comes from the Father. And that's the title of this message. Come from the Father, or from the Father, if you will. From God the Father. However you want to put it. Because we're going to see this pattern again. We've looked at verses 17 and onward. We looked at those pretty closely. We were looking at the Sabbath controversy that comes up. We've done it in an early, earlier message, so I won't repeat all of that here. If you go down to verse 25... You read that some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, and mind you, they're listening to Jesus speak. They're listening to him preach. And they're saying to themselves, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And you remember all the way back in chapter 5, Jesus has been ruffling feathers. They're jealous of him. He's stealing their thunder. They want rid of him. They're accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker. They're accusing him of making himself out to be equal with God, which he is doing. I've gone to great pains to show he is not breaking the Sabbath. There are popular preachers that goes far to say he's a Sabbath breaker. It makes me, that just, and I, I like some of the preachers that say that, and it just, whew, I mean, I can't do that. He is not breaking the Sabbath. He's keeping the Sabbath. He's doing works of mercy on the Sabbath and works of necessity on the Sabbath. That's not a violation of the Sabbath but they're seeking to kill him. These people in the crowd realize. That, in fact, we've, in earlier sermons, we've seen that they don't even speak openly about him because there's so much tension in regards to Jesus. If you're caught speaking sympathetically towards him, you can get thrown out of the synagogue. They realize there's all this tension about Jesus. When the whole thing started, when the when the uh, this, the, the feast started, everyone's wanting to know where he is. Is he going to come? They're all looking for him. They're hoping to arrest him. And now all of a sudden... He's up there speaking. He's the keynote speaker, the guy they're trying to kill. And they're scratching their heads. There he is preaching. If you look at verse 25, verse 26, here he is speaking openly, and they don't say anything to him. And they're scratching their heads like, fellas, there's the guy you're looking for. He's, um, he's right there. <laughs> We're all listening to him. And they're not even heckling him. And they're like perplexed. They're perplexed. And they they say, wait a second. He's speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're they're like on the verge of teeter-tottering, but they're perplexed. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. Now, what's going on here? There was a teaching that was somewhat popular during this time that went like this. Uh, When the Christ appears, he's going to appear sort of out of a vacuum, if you will, so to speak. No one will know where he come from. His origins will be mysterious. And in fact, some went as far to say not even the Christ will know where he's come from. And they have obviously embraced that idea. And they're using that idea to scrutinize or using that idea to try to discern if Jesus could be the Christ. Oh, how is it that he could be up here teaching? How could he be teaching the way he's teaching? Arguably, he's very Christ-like here, but we know where he come from. We know where he has come from. And when the Christ appears, we're not going to know where he's come from. See, that's causing, they're perplexed. They're perplexed. So we have a statement of perplexity, just like we did before. You see the pattern. A statement of perplexity, and then Jesus' responds. Notice in verse 28, Jesus' responds as he taught in the temple. He proclaims as he taught in the temple. First thing he says is a question. You know me, and you know where I come from? He's doing it again. He's answering them in the categories in which they're questioning him. And he says... You you know me, and you know where I come from? Now, how are we to understand that question? I think we understand it perfectly if we understand it this way. Oh, you know me, do you? Oh, you know me now, huh? You know me, and you you know where I come from, do you now? Really? Well, what do they know? Many of them knew that he grew up in Nazareth, son of a carpenter, some of them remember him from the carpenters' union. Probably remember the first time Joseph introduced him. Hey, you know, he's a great guy to work with, hard worker, very diligent, perfect actually as I recall. Um, come to think of it, I don't, can't say anything but high praise for him. Um, but he's also got a gift for teaching. Boy, can he teach. And he does miracles and stuff. He's unusual. There's no question he's unusual. Okay, these are things they know about him, right? But Jesus' question is, do you know me? That's the problem. See, it's quite easy to know all about Jesus. Many of, many of us, you, you, you come here Sunday after Sunday, and I'm so thankful for every single one of you. And we can sit here Sunday after Sunday And we can learn all kinds of things about Jesus. But the question before us is, do we know him? Do we know him? I I can put it to you. This morning I was thinking how to drive this point home, and I was thinking, you know, prior to coming to faith, you know, I was so into playing guitar and so into music. And I I think probably my favorite guitar player by far, was Eric Clapton. Now, I know so much about Eric Clapton. I mean, I read, and yeah, I know Harry, you like him too, don't you? (laughs) And, you know, I mean, I could have told you all, I've forgotten a lot of it. I've had to make room for Hebrew verbs and Greek verbs. So I had to get rid of some Eric Clapton stuff. Um, But And I don't play much anymore, so I can't play like that anymore. But but I read all these books. In fact, one year, Mom got me a biography of Eric Clapton for Christmas. I got the book on my shelf. And I, I knew all these things about him, but I've never met him. I've never met him. I saw him play one time to Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. He rarely came to Pittsburgh. I saw him play one time. So I was in a room with him for an hour, but I never met him. Another example, is many of you know Steve, have heard of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, spent all this time learning how to play his music, learning how to play song after song after song after song. I never met him. I did meet his brother, Jimmy Vaughan, at a show and had a conversation with him. We almost actually head-butted. We were in a Fender booth at a NAMM show in Los Angeles, downtown in the convention center, and there was a, a bunch of guitars, and he's walking this way around the corner as I'm walking this way around the corner, and we're both focused on the same guitar, and we almost Cranked heads, and when we realized we were right next to each other, we stood up like this, and we were like this. And he broke the silence, and he went like this. He went, John, Vaughn, Jimmy, and I was kind of struck. I mean, as soon as I seen him, I realized who he was, and I'm sit, I'm standing there thinking, this is Stevie, this this is Stevie Ray Vaughan's big brother. You know, this is really cool. I didn't say anything to him about Stevie Ray Vaughan. I didn't say anything to him about any of that. We introduced ourselves he introduced himself to me i introduced myself to him we looked at the guitars and we talked for 15 minutes about the guitars and he if someone asked him who rick anderson was today he would have no clue unless he has a incredible memory he would have no clue i met him i spoke with him but can i say that i know him i don't know him I don't know him on a personal level. That's the problem here we have in the text. They're perplexed. They're saying, we know where this man comes from. And the fact is, the irony of it is, they really don't know where he comes from. Do they? Where has he come from? He tells us where he comes from. Jesus, in verse 28, he says, you know me, you know where I come from, do you now? I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And that's the second point I want to make, is not as Jesus' teaching come from the Father, not only is Jesus' teaching come from God the Father, but Jesus himself has come from God the Father. Does that make sense? Now, Why would I? Let me try to teach you how I'm coming up with this. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, I read this and I didn't get all of that either. Let me show you some of the tools that you use for getting that. You don't need to turn there because you've done it so many times and I'm trying to behave this morning. Um, In John chapter 20, you know the verse verse 31, John tells us why these things are written. John says in that passage that these things, in other words, he is writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the purpose that John is writing. What is his purpose? So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, what does John want us to know about Jesus that is going to move us closer to that goal? What he wants us to know is that Jesus' teaching is from God the Father. He wants us to know that Jesus himself is from God the Father. And he wants us to know one further thing. If you look, uh, verse thirty. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. Now, see here, see here. See what John just did here? He threw another theme in the mix. You see that? Remember how I told you he has got these themes, and they go down, and they submerge, and they're gone for a little bit, and they surface, then they submerge? Looky here, verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour not yet come. That's another theme. We're going to skip that right now because we're going to be covering that. That's another theme. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus then said, Now in this last one, Jesus gives a response. And then there's a perplexing statement that follows. It's actually backwards from the other two. Let me explain it, and I think it'll become clear. In verse 33, Jesus, Jesus gives a response. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That's Jesus' statement. Now, here is the perplexity. Notice in verses 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? You see the perplexity of the group again. There's perplexity. Jesus has made a statement. See, instead of the perplexity coming first and then the statement following, and the last one, it's backwards. The statement is first, then the perplexity follows. Now, the person, what, what's so exciting about John's gospel is you can only get this the first time you read it. If you've already read it once or you already know how the story ends, you know what Jesus is talking about. But try to imagine when you're reading it for the first time, what is he talking about? I mean, this is better than anything you're ever going to watch on TV, certainly better than that. It's better than any any production that we could make. What does he mean? What does he mean by this? What does he mean? Well, the reader who's read John's gospel, the one who knows how it ends, knows what he's talking about. Where is he going to go where no one will find him? And the answer is, he is going to return to the Father. You see, his teaching is from the Father. He is from the Father. And he is returning to the Father to the Father. That's what John wants us to see here. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see here. Now, they're perplexed. What do they think? Well, they're thinking on an earthly level. Verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Or... Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? That's the diaspora sometimes you hear uh, about in the in the New Testament. And this is, you know, the, the, the Jewish people had been scattered uh, through all kinds of things, the Babylonians, the, the Syrians. I mean, the, the, Jew, the Jewish people had been scattered all over the place. There's these little colonies that are scattered around uh, Greek territories. What are they thinking? They're thinking, oh, he's just going to run back off into the Gentile lands, maybe teach these colonies, if you will, or he's going to run off and he's going to maybe teach proselytes, those who, who have, those who are Gentile in origin but have converted to Jews, or maybe he's just going to teach the Greeks. Maybe that's what he's going to do. But you see, in all of these scenarios, they're like, it's, they don't have a clue. But what will Jesus actually do? He will come back in six months and he will go to the cross in order to die for my sins and for your sins. And through the doorway of death, he will return uh, to the Father. Amen. Let's put this all together. We can wrap this up really quick. We can put this all together uh, by, by way of application. I think the application is pretty clear. If Jesus' teaching is from the Father, then we should embrace it as certain truth, shouldn't we? I mean, we should embrace it as, in fact, we should bra- embrace this as the truth that discerns all truth claims. There's no wiggle room on this. Because if, what else are we going to use? What else can we possibly use to discern truth from falsehood? If God has spoken, if this is God's word, and if God has absolute authority, then so does his word. If we are worshiping a true God, Jesus says we are. That puts this at an absolute level. This is the truth. If Jesus' truth is from the Father, then it is absolute truth it's the truth upon which we discern all truth claims so what are we to do we're to embrace it as certainty are we not and happy we're happy to know that that would be the position of all of you or most of you correct if not please talk to me secondly john is telling us that jesus has come from the father If Jesus has come from the Father, if He is a gift that's been given to us from the Father, then how should we embrace Him? We should embrace Him as if He is of much more value than silver or gold. And we really, I mean, in the United States, we really need help with this one, don't we? Because we're quick to embrace all these things of the world. And we're so slow to embrace Jesus, aren't we? That's not something the United States has a monopoly on. That's, that's fallen humanity in general, but especially in the United States. Um, we, we embrace cars and trucks and houses and businesses and vocations and all this stuff. Children. We embrace all of that, and we hold on to that so much more tightly than we're willing to embrace Jesus. But if Jesus has come from the Father, and if Jesus is a gift from the Father... How should we embrace him? And, that's, and that, that brings us to really that, that second, that second uh, scene, if you will, where Jesus says to them, you know me, do you? You know where I come from, do you? We really need to ask ourselves this question this morning. Do we know things about Jesus or do we know Jesus? I know we know things about Jesus. But the question is, do we know Jesus? And someone said, well, how, how do I discern that? How do I know the difference? Well, I know lots of things about Eric Clapton. I don't know him. He's someone I can tell you about. If we apply this to Jesus, I do know a lot of things about Jesus. But ask yourself this question, is he a real living presence in your life that helps you through? Is he a real living presence in your life that you look to and lean to constantly? Not like a genie in a bottle, because an unbeliever does that. An unbeliever does that all day long. When they're in a jam, they look to God. That happens all day long. But is he truly, really a living, active presence in your life? Let me ask you a third question. Are you in love with him? Not in a romantic way, but do you love him? Do you love him? And we'll say, well, how do I know if I love him? Are you following him? Do you obey him? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? you obey me. And thirdly, the last scene there pertains to where Jesus is going. We see his teaching is from the Father. We see he comes from the Father. We see that he's returning to the Father. Now, how do we make application of that? Well, he comes to reveal the Father to us. That's his teaching. He comes as a gift from the Father, welcoming sinners to come to himself. And that's why I chose Psalm 68 this morning, because when he returns to the Father, he's taking his people With him. How can we know if we're going with him? If we're going with him, then we're following him, aren't we? You know, you could think of Zacchaeus. You know, here Jesus comes past the crowds, and Zacchaeus wants to see him. He gets up in a tree, and Jesus goes past a whole bunch of people. But he calls Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus comes down, and what does Zacchaeus do? He follows him. Are you following you? J.C. Ryle said it famously uh, over 100 years ago, Jesus doesn't save anyone he can't command. There are so many people in our culture, in our neighborhood, and you know them, they'll make statements like, I know if I died today, I would go to heaven. Do you now? Because in your life, there's very little evidence that you're really following him. In your life, there's very little evidence that you love him. In your life, there may be very little evidence that you know him. Does that make sense? Let's end on a positive note. I don't like to end on those kind of notes. That's an ugly note there, that's a dissonant note. Let's end on a beautiful melody. He makes himself known. And if anyone's sitting here this morning saying, I don't know, man, I don't think I know a lot of stuff about him, but what do I do if, I, if I'm asking the question and, I, and it's negative, I don't really know him? The Holy Spirit loves to reveal Jesus. We need to understand that about the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit love to do? He loves to give glory to the Son. He loves to give glory to the Father. How does he do that? He reveals. And Jesus has told us, John chapter 6, In verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Don't worry about whether the Father has given you to Jesus. Don't worry about that. That's the divine decree that we don't know about. Just concern yourself about coming to him. If you come to him and you say, I don't know you, but I want to know you, you've got his written word, which is from the Father and carries all the weight of the Father, that is saying and promising, I won't turn you away. I won't turn you away. It's not me that's stopping you from coming. It's love of your sin that's keeping you away. Come to me and be saved and see my beauty and see my glory and be mine and I will be yours. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we can barely... Say and express these things with dry eyes. They're so magnificent. If we didn't have your word, we would think that we've just lost our rockers. This is too good to be true. But, Father, you've given it to us in your word, and it's true. Oh, Father, we thank you, and we praise you that we can have a salvation. We can have a family. We can have all of the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And they're all ours simply by coming to him, casting our souls at his feet and calling on him to save us. Father, many of us have walked with him for years and we know, we know, we see so dimly, we only see in part, but you're so faithful to show us and continue to show us and you're so faithful to continually open our eyes and open our ears and we see your beauty, Father, and we want more of it. We pray, Father, you'll continue to give us more of it. And as we come to the table this morning, Father, show us, O Father, show us your beauty, show us your sacrificial love as you laid your very life down in our place that we could be washed and cleansed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.